Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Mini Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then mm-hmm. a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On Theme is a production of iHeartRadio and Fairweather Friends Media. Today's episode of On Theme, we might regret this episode later. And I'm Eves, and today's story starts with regret. Oh, so we're going to go deep with this one. Should I grab some tissues? I mean, a little bit of soul-searching and accountability is required to ride this ride, so... (laughs) Okay, I'm ready, I'm ready. So, you know, we talked in a previous episode about how art-making really forces us to try in public. And sometimes we're happy with the outcome of that process, But sometimes we don't love what comes out of the other end. Sometimes we want to stuff it in the back of a dark drawer or bury it under 10 feet of dense Georgia clay. Or better yet, pretend like it never even existed. But because we can't turn back the clock, we are forced to live with our regret. So rather than treat the shameful work like a beautiful baby that we birthed into a harsh, harsh world, we might choose to disown it instead, treat it like an estranged child. You know, that sounds dramatic, but it is kind of that serious. Folks will put a lot of time and effort into some of their creations and then be ashamed of them or wish they never created them in the first place. Are you speaking from experience, Katie? Are you the folks you speak of? I'm not too proud to admit (laughs) that there's a work or two or 
several in my past that I wish would have never seen the light of day for real. And which ones are those? Uh-uh, you ain't you ain't gonna ask me the question. Would you care to tell everyone about your most embarrassing pieces? Nah, honestly not. I think I'm good. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> you know, it could be cathartic, though. And the thing is, we're not alone in our artistic regret. There are plenty of people who have put things out for eyes and ears and hearts and minds to enjoy and then poo-poo them later. Yeah, and it's not always about poor judgment or bad art either. It can be way more complicated than that. For sure. And it could just be that we get older and our perspectives shift. Or it could be that whatever message we were trying to convey no longer sits right with us. Or it could be that the quality of the art doesn't hold up to our current standard. Or maybe we worked with a collaborator who's no longer our favorite person. Mm, You get it. The reasons abound. But regret can hit a little differently when you're a Black artist. From the jump in our art and storytelling, we can be forced into certain roles, expected to act certain ways, and talk about certain things. We're stereotyped and we're typecast. We've taken opportunities when we were hard up and jobs were few and far between. Mm. And we say (laughs) And we say, you felt that one, didn't you? I Katie? felt that. I, I needed that 300. <laughs> and you are not alone in that. And we say things about race before our thoughts have fully matured or evolved. We stare down our own internalized racism. We're human. We make mistakes. We grow. We change our minds. Period. And woo, does that get even more complicated when you're dealing with societies that have lots of hangups around race. Ones that love and hate to talk about race at the same damn time. Ones where feelings about Blackness and Black people change on a dime. And sometimes we regret work that did not age well in the race department. And that can be a heavy pill to swallow because a lot can we carry the burden of race on our shoulders when we ain't even have nothing to do with this construction in the first place. But that regret can feel pretty icky. But after that feeling has settled in and we've come to terms with the fact that we've done something we're not fully rocking with anymore, we get the chance to choose how we're going to reckon with our regret. And this is where we get to the story of Ernest Hogan. Part 1. Ernest Regret. Ernest Hogan? You remember that song that we heard up top? That's a song that Ernest Hogan, a Black man born just a couple of months before Juneteenth in 1865, composed and wrote. But we'll come back to that song later. So Ernest Hogan was born with the name Ernest Ruben Crowdis Jr., but he later started using the last name Hogan for reasons that remain mysterious. One of many guesses is that he took the name Hogan to capitalize on the popularity of Irish performers at the time. But whether that's true or not, and beyond if it was that, his clever marketing skills, Hogan was a man of many talents. His work in the entertainment business began when he was just a child. He was in a circus and traveling minstrel troops. He acted in performances of Uncle Tom's Cabin, and eventually he moved on to vaudeville acts. Hogan busted his chops on the stage, making it big with his performance prowess. Okay, quick break for definitions. Minstrel shows were a performance in the 1800s where white actors and blackface would 
be caricatures of black people in comedic sketches, or so they thought were funny. Um, and was the case with Hogan, there were also black minstrel performers in groups um, who were also in blackface. Um, so by the beginning of the 20th century, minstrel shows were not as popular as they were in the 1800s. And as you said, Ballville took that spotlight instead. And those shows contained a bunch of different acts like magic, comedy, dancing, singing. They was they was doing a lot. True, true. Thank you for that breakdown, Katie. So Hogan, he had a lot of acclaim and the money followed too. In 1901, he was reportedly one of the highest paid black vaudeville entertainers of his time. So by the end of the 1800s, Hogan had done his laps around the business. He'd already made a noteworthy impact on stage performance in the United States. But another field where he made his name was music. As authors Lynn Abbott and Doug Seroff put it in the book, Out of Sight, The Rise of African-American Popular Music, 1889-1895, quote, Ernest Hogan was a conspicuous player in Ragtime's initial commercial ascendancy, end quote. In fact, he was called the father of Ragtime during his life. Hmm. The people recognized Hogan's hand in the birth and the success of the musical genre, even though its origins preceded his published works in it. Ragtime music is usually performed on a piano. Think of this. Hogan published La Pa Mala in 1895 and called it a rag. The song even had a dance to go with it. The lyrics went like this. Hand upon your head, let your mind roll far back, 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 and look at the stars. Stand up brightly, dance it brightly, that's the Pasma Law. Hey. <laughs> Sound familiar? <laughs> I could think of a few songs from the early aughts that use a similar formula. Because we were in the cafeteria dancing to them together. <laughs> Girl, it was an era. But yes, La Palma Law was a hit. Still, it didn't create quite the buzz that the song Hogan released the next year did. Let me guess. That's the song we heard at the beginning of this episode. Mm-hmm, exactly. Hmm. So we'll get into it after the break. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics. 
as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Uh, thank God for deliverance. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. And we're coming in hot with coon songs. Sounds like my kind of ditty. <laughs> Girl, stop playing. We are being serious here, okay? Okay, I'm trying to give the people a history. I I'll button up. So coon songs were kind of like minstrel shows in music form. They featured stereotypes of Black people, and in the 1890s, these songs were set to ragtime music. And ooh, Katie, so-called coon songs had a moment. White folks ate these songs up, the Black dialect, the positioning of Black folks as inferior, Black life being the butt of the joke, all wrapped up in the neat package of a jolly little tune that can be enjoyed on a sunny Southern morning. Most coon songs were composed by white people but many were created by Black folks. And these songs were super popular in the late 19th century and into the early 20th. The sheet music sold really well, allowing white folks to perform the songs themselves and to ingest and reproduce the stereotypes portrayed in them. Of course, Black folks had a lot of feelings about coon songs. They perpetuated negative caricatures of Black people and they reinforced racism. White folks sung these syrupy, lively songs happily, pleased to say words out loud that disparaged Black folks. Black and white people were so-called coon shouters, a.k.a. singers of these songs. But white women got the most notoriety from singing these numbers. Some Black critics and musicians rejected coon songs as harmful and crude. Others acknowledged how they were crafted and performed skillfully by Black entertainers and that they had gained popularity worldwide. So these songs gave Black entertainers opportunities, and they were testaments to their musical skill. But what what was the cost of that? <sighs> it just shows that we be talking about the same stuff over and over. <laughs> like, has there been a new conversation? Because it really yeah. reminds me of, like, do you remember when Shadi Lowe, R.I.P., R.I.P., yeah. He was trying to have a reality TV show called All My Baby Mamas. I don't remember that. That sounds like parody, and I don't remember that. Niggas protested. 
black people were mad. They're like, oh my God, this is like showing stereotypes. Da, da, da. Okay. And like five years later, here come the Duggars with all 20 million of their kids and they uh, sexually assaulting folks and stuff. White people were like, let them cook. Mm-hmm. But like black people were like, oh, this is like so bad. It seems like it's an example of that in every art form, like whether it's reality TV, which we can like m- argue the merits of its artfulness, but even like urban fiction that first of all urban fiction held us down throughout the middle school years oh my god (laughs) we was passing them books like (laughs) (laughs) but like during bill clinton's campaign he went after urban fiction talking about sister soldier in particular i don't remember that it's like do i think like as you said white people should be getting like rich off of singing coon songs Mm -hmm. no but like should black people maybe (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, which also, I mean, there's the whole layer of respectability politics that's involved in it. Yeah. Us wanting to look good in front of Massa, essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, How we choose to express ourselves out in public being something that's highly policed by us ourselves. (laughs) And here in returns, the internalized racism. (laughs) But I mean, when when you've been policed for so long... You can take the police away because there's a cop that lives in your head. Exactly. It's subsumed as part of you now. And of course, like, I don't want to minimize that because these are questions that we should be asking. It's just that so frequently we turn to this more so authoritative or definitive way of looking at it rather than, okay, let's sit down and think about (laughs) the nuances of this. Like, should we be doing or should we not? And I think that also comes down to, like, the conversations that we should be having in public and that conversations that should be happening in private but these coon songs are already something that are so widely disseminated that they have their own gravity at that point so I can see how much turmoil that causes in us collectively and individually because they've taken on this life of their own and it's like it's so many things because there's also the layer of us choosing to and wanting to share our work beyond ourselves and not being able to control how other people use it. I think it has a lot to do with shame, too. I'm trying to be empathetic for the people who are like, we need to like not do this anymore. Because I'm trying to think, has there been an occasion where I heard some piece of music or a movie or something where I'm like, this should not be allowed? And yeah. I can't really think of one because there's just so many people in the world. <laughs> it's like some people can do this coon shit and some people can do like more like, you know, uh, things that I would want to listen to or watch or read. Stereotypes have truth in them. So, like, if you're ashamed that you like watermelon... It's a reflection is what you're saying. You know, it's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> like, eat your watermelon. It's okay. Um, but I think it's like that shame and, like, that respectability that you talked about. Like, oh, like, we can't do this thing because it's perceived this way. Even if it's uh-huh. not a bad thing. So, yeah, I'm trying to be empathetic for the people who were kind of cool on the cool songs and, like, trying to shut them down. Yeah, we know that a Black man composed and wrote this. Like, now what do we do with it? Which, I don't know, still hasn't been answered. But it sounds like Ernest Hogan had some thoughts. He did. He did. So now we've arrived at the song, The Object of Hogan's Regret. All coons look alike to me. Subtitled, A Darkie Misunderstanding. (laughs) First of all, I love that subtitle. (laughs) Right. He was like, in case you did not understand. All coons look alike to me. I've got another bow, you see. So to sum up the story of the song, the narrator, who is a black man, has a significant other named Lucy, but she's not worried about him because she got a new man who treats her even better. Plus, all coons, 
black men look the same to her anyway, so it doesn't even matter which one she chooses. The narrator, on the other hand, has not moved on, he doesn't understand her change of heart, and he's hurt by what she said, rightfully so. Hogan died of tuberculosis in 1909, but of course, the impact of his work in so-called coon songs in general lived on. Let me be clear. I am not interested in belittling his accomplishments in stage work or pioneer status in ragtime, but I am interested in Hogan's feelings about all coons look alike to me after he released it to the world. In the book 100 Years of the Negro in Show Business by fellow Black vaudeville entertainer Tom Fletcher, Fletcher talks about a conversation that he had with Hogan. According to Fletcher, Hogan said that the word coon was controversial, sure, but it made him money at a time when making money was hard, and it put some money in many other entertainers' pockets, too. And he said it injected more life into show business. He pointed out how people went on to do their own versions of the song without the word coon. I put it on, it was rather small, but old a to me. And he acknowledged the musicians who played ragtime in back rooms, but never published their work. His ragtime songs, controversy over the content notwithstanding, documented a history that could have been lost, or at least fallen by the wayside, had he not produced them. Fletcher paraphrased Hogan in the book, quote, With nothing but time on my hands now, I often wonder if I was right or wrong. So the thing that, I, that my mind is really pondering is the fact that his name followed the recording Everywhere, Like, everything you see it on, no matter who sang it, it's like this was composed by Ernest Hogan. Right. So there were many others who sang it, but we knew who it was attributed to. And he just can't escape that reputation, <laughs> no matter what context is being presented in. Even if there is conversation around the complexity of his legacy, the issue with it being a coon song and the word coon and the context of it all is still the starting point of that conversation today. I feel a way even talking about him now, because it's like, yes, I still get to talk about him, his very important legacy, all that he accomplished. But the starting point of this conversation is still about that work and the regret. Yeah, he's probably like rolling around his grave that we are talking about him like this. Right, <laughs> right. He's like, I wrote other shit too. Another example of this kind of race-related regret that falls on the shoulders of Black storytellers is Octavia Butler's novel, Survivor. Part 2, Octavia's Regret. Survivor was published in 1978. It's part of her Patternist series, which also includes the books Pattern Master, Mind of My Mind, Wild Seed, and Clay's Ark. But Survivor wasn't included in the series compilation, Seed to Harvest, that was published in 2007. That's because Butler didn't want anything to do with Survivor after it was released. Survivor is set on another planet— the book revolves around Alana, who was adopted by the missionaries. The missionaries are a group of Christian humans who left Earth due to the threat of the Clay Ark Plague. The native inhabitants of the planet, the Cone, have fur and can change colors, but they're relatively human-like. Their social roles are determined by their fur color, and there are rival tribes of Cone on the planet, 
And Alana ends up having to negotiate her way between the missionaries and the two tribes in order to help save the missionaries. Of course, folks have different feelings about the book. There are readers that have recognized its merits and its flaws. They've respected Butler's wish for it never to be reprinted and also said that it deserves a reprint. But regardless of the criticism and praise, Butler did not like the novel. She expressed this feeling in multiple interviews. In 1990, Randall Keenan interviewed Octavia Butler over the phone for the journal Callaloo. One of the things that I was most embarrassed about in my novel Survivor is my human characters going off to another planet and finding other people they could immediately start having children with. Later I thought, oh well, you can't really erase embarrassing early work, but you don't have to repeat it. Octavia didn't erase it. But she did make sure it wasn't disseminated much more widely than it already was. She thought that the book wasn't finished yet when she sold it to Doubleday. She even said at one point that she sold it because she needed money to travel to do research for her other work, a little book you might have heard of called Kindred. She clearly wasn't proud of survivors' treatment of race and species. This is what she said in an interview with Teresa Littleton for Amazon. When I was young, a lot of people wrote about going to another world and finding either little green men or little brown men, and they were always less in some way. They were a little sly or a little like the natives in a very bad old movie. And I thought, no way. Apart from all these human beings populating the galaxy, this is really offensive garbage. People ask me why I don't like Survivor, my third novel. And it's because it feels a little bit like that. Some humans go up to another world and immediately begin mating with the aliens and having children with them. I think of it as my Star Trek novel. Making art is hard, and we can be our own worst critics. And Butler did her fair share of publicly and privately disavowing the book and asking people not to read it. But it lives on. In an essay based on a talk that she gave in 2011, writer and activist Alexis Pauline Gums says about the novel, definitively, we need it. And I've seen that sentiment also said by other people who have commented on the work. Octavia's regret was so deep that she didn't want the work to be reproduced anymore. This self-censorship is pretty much the opposite of what happened with Hogan's song, which made its way onto sheet music prints and into the mouths of plenty of performers across time and space. Butler wanted no more witnesses, wanted the story of Survivor to end there. But despite her disdain and reasons for disliking the novel, many of the people who did read it responded with consideration and thoughtfulness. We're going to make work we don't love, and we can't control how people receive it. Both Hogan and Butler's stories feel like exercises in letting go, but from opposite ends of a spectrum. I wonder if the afterlife of these works deal with the amount of autonomy like Octavia Butler had, as opposed to Ernest Hogan. Like, they lived in different times and spaces. And, I mean, by that point, she was a well-known writer. Mm -hmm. And we, you know, had gained significantly more rights (laughs) at that point. So she was able to censor it to a certain extent. But like you said, Hogan's just went on and on (laughs) despite him like, hey, I don't like this song anymore. It's also very like comforting to know that someone like as talented as Octavia Butler was like, I was just doing this for a check so I could do the thing (laughs) I really wanted to do. Um, And it sounds like she knew like, okay, these are the books that 
were popular when I was a kid. Like, let me just write one because I know it'll sell. And I guess not really thinking too far into the future of like, oh, like, then I won't want people to read it, though. But I wonder how much of that processing was happening while she was writing it versus once it's published. Because at that point, she had an opportunity to see how people did respond to it. And it's one of those things, too, where you can't control how people receive it. But I think that in this case, there is a lot of ambiguity, way more ambiguity in her work than there was in Hogan's. Like, the conversation around race, colonialism, captivity, all of the things that come up in this work, and so, so many more. Mm -hmm. It is, like, I think easier to misinterpret. I think in the case of Octavia Butler's work, is more of a situation where the more you think about it, the more many different ways you can flip it because it's a plot. It's in its own genre. And there are so many ways you can take it versus Ernest Hogan's song was like a very straightforward plot. If we think of it in terms of storytelling, it's not that hard to follow versus how we can... You can choose to take one way down the road versus another way down the road when we think about things in Octavia Butler's novel. Right. And I think people misinterpret things all the time or, like, ascribe certain metaphors or meanings when there really isn't any. But I think when that happens and it's, like, on the positive side, mm-hmm. the author will be like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I that was that. it. Uh-huh. That sounds good enough. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true, and I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things, and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. 
As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Regret hits different in the internet age. Stuff lives on and it's not ever going away. We have screenshots, archived web pages, secret recordings, all kinds of receipts. So it's easy for us to be reminded of our regrets. I think with the internet, the regret cycle is probably much quicker. Mm -hmm. Just because, like, once you put something out there, there are, you know, blogs that can, like, write something about it. There's people on social media who can comment. And you see, you see it in real time. Like, it gets flashed on your phone. Mm-hmm. Um, you see the person, like, you can basically see the person typing it out with the little dots, like, oh, this sucks, or whatever. <laughs> or, oh, like, this is so problematic, or whatever the case may be. And then, you know, um, depending on how big your audience is, that criticism might be on, like, the front page of the New York Times. <laughs> You'd be like, oh, damn. But that being said, I think the regret um, is probably more instantaneous because of the internet. But I don't know if the artist expresses that regret. Because I feel like people be, mm-hmm. like, very defensive. So this makes me think of Viola Davis in the 2011 movie The Help, which is based on a novel of the same name by a white woman named Catherine Stockett. Part 3, Viola's Regret. Go and Google Viola Davis The Help, and you'll find plenty of articles written over several years talking about how she has misgivings about the story and taking the role. Yeah, and if you haven't read or watched The Help, I'll sum it up for you. The story is set in 1960s Mississippi. Um, In it, a white woman named Skeeter collects the stories of Black domestic workers for a book that she's writing. The workers are treated poorly, and part of Skeeter's mission is to expose this treatment. Once she gets enough of the workers to open up, she finishes the book, publishes it anonymously, and gives the profits to the workers. Viola Davis plays Abilene Clark. Her character is the film's narrator and a nanny who raises a white socialite's child. In the end, she leaves her job and decides to become a writer. No one had ever asked me what it felt like to be me. Once I told the truth about that, I felt free. The movie was criticized for its white saviorism and its forefronting of the white characters versus the black ones that the plot was actually focused on. In an interview with Vanity Fair, Viola Davis talked about the conflicting feelings that she had about the help. She felt like, quote, it wasn't the voices of the maids that were heard. Playing a maid in 2011 and, you know, my Hattie McDaniel and... Butterfly McQueen, it was like that was just so a part of how I saw it. I saw stereotype. And I didn't want to put that out there. I didn't want to be kind of blasted by 
the African-American community especially, to be totally honest. But there is no way that you can read this book and look at the script and even look at this movie and say that anyone was a stereotype. In that interview, you can hear her really wrestling with so many things. The history of Black women in film playing stereotypical roles, her admiration for Black actors who came before her, like Hattie McDaniel and Butterfly McQueen, her desire to play characters that are round and complicated, her hesitance to play a character that could be viewed as tasteless or flat, her fear about receiving negative criticism from Black audience members, and her desire to take roles that are meaningful, challenging, and worthy of her time and legacy. She clearly wanted to make good art, be part of a story that was told well. Yeah, and in that last part where she talks about how the characters are not stereotypes in the book, it takes me back to Hogan's Regret. How there were definitely stereotypes in Hogan's music and coon songs in general, but he recognized that the situation wasn't so black and white. But at the same time, it was like they felt the weight of the race on their shoulders. They felt some sort of responsibility for representing the race well, being good black stewards, not disappointing the black delegation. Davis even said in a 2018 New York Times interview, The responsibility of feeling like I am the great black female hope for women of color has been a real professional challenge. Being that role model and picking up that baton when you're struggling in your own life has been difficult. I really wish that we could release this weight. Pharrell, this predicament does also make me think, though, of the difference between regretting your own work versus regretting being a part of someone else's. What do you mean by that? Like, I feel like it probably is different for Viola Davis to be in, like, these white people's movie portraying the stereotype. Like, maybe if you wrote it, and you're like, okay, that was like in bad taste or like I didn't know enough and it was my thing and you can kind of take full ownership over it Mm -hmm. versus like I was low-key just like a pawn (laughs) and I'm embarrassed now. And you feel all this weight for like disappointing black people or not like portraying black people how you want it to or you think we should be portrayed and he was just like an employee. (laughs) Yeah. I can't speak for Viola Davis, but I would imagine that's probably a different kind of Shame, I guess, if shame would be the word to use. Mm. Because I guess the decision-making was different. When you're writing your own work or creating your own work, then you're able to make those decisions at every step of the way. But when you're stepping into something that has been fully formed already and you're just one piece of the puzzle in the entirety of the image, then I can see what you mean. Yeah, I mean... I don't know. Have you heard of that movie called The Best of Enemies? Mm -mm. So Taraji P. Henson is in it, and people kind of had the same criticism. So it's, like, about this, like, black woman who befriends a Ku Klux Klan member. And they, like, form this, like, unlikely duo. First of all, (laughs) now you're making this sound like a buddy comedy. A a trial. (laughs) (laughs) The way that the black woman that Taraji P. Henson is playing and Atwater is portrayed is just like, this ain't, you know, like, there's no depth. Mm -hmm. She's just, like, there as, like, a placeholder when she was, like, a whole civil rights activist. But, like, when people pointed that out to Taraji, Mm -hmm. she was very, like, defensive about it. Like, she didn't, publicly, she didn't get it. So, I mean, I think kudos to Viola Davis for, like, publicly saying, like, I wouldn't do this again. And, like, People be thinking, like, actors are super rich and they can, like, turn down any job. That is not the case for a lot of people. And I think especially for Viola Davis back in 2011. Like, now she's known as this, like, huge actress. But, like, going back in the time machine, like, 
did she feel empowered to be like, no, I'm not going to take this. Like, I'm good financially without this role. Yeah. And one thing that just came up for me is how I think from the outside looking in, this what Viola Davis did and also going back to Hogan, what he did can feel like very safe bets. Like, I think if somebody looking at the help would be like, that's a very safe role of you to take. And at the same time, it's like also not a safe role to take because Viola Davis herself acknowledged how difficult it could be for her to take this because she knew all of the context of the role, all of the trappings that a role like that could come with, and the backlash that she could receive for it. And it was the same for Hogan because it was a very safe thing to do because minstrelsy <laughs> was already a very popular thing. Right, yeah, And he knew that in creating this song, he could have a, a hit that many people enjoyed. So it was like a balance between safety and risk that they were teetering on this tightrope across a canyon. <laughs> okay, imagery. <laughs> <laughs> I also think, like, about the popularity of certain things. Like, how does that um, impact your regret? Because The Help was a very popular movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a very popular book and became a very popular movie. And it's like... Um, if you just did, like, a an indie film that not many people saw, but it was the same thing, mm-hmm. would you still feel that regret? Or, like, are you feeling that regret because of it's, like, the echo chamber of people, like, commenting on it and, like, more people can see you um, doing this thing? I think echo chamber is a perfect way to put it because I think it's an amplification of that feeling, most likely. Because if I have a feeling that's personal, I know how that feels in my body and how to handle it. But... When that feeling is exacerbated because I have a bunch of other people basically affirming that feeling, I would imagine it's a lot bigger. And especially yeah. when you're a person who's as big as Viola Davis is and a movie as big as The Help is. So it can't feel good. And then another thing that I will say about that, too, speaking of amplification, is that it wasn't just once that she addressed it and or that people asked her about it. Right. I wonder what it was like for her to say that out loud repeatedly. I think it's also freeing, like, as a up-and-coming actor who may, like, really look up to Viola Davis, like, see her doing that, too. Mm, yeah. Because it could be, you know, what someone needs to hear so that they don't get into a role that they suspect they might regret later Mm -hmm. or also like okay I did this thing that I regret it's not the end of the world I can like build upon my body of work and like that's not the thing that I'm truly like known for Mm -hmm. I love that you said that because I don't think there's an answer to this question that we've posed around what does regret look like in public for black people who are facing race-related regret in their work. It's something that has to be worked through in every single instance. And clearly, like, seeing other people talk about it out loud in the way that they process it can be something that's helpful for other people. And I don't know if we can put that in a neat little bow. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know? (laughs) These aren't the last times that this is going to happen. Absolutely not. Because we can't be expected to be perfect or to know everything about race. When we create work and we're trying to do it authentically and fearlessly and lovingly, then things aren't always going to come out right. (laughs) True. I regret this episode. (laughs) But seriously, we might even regret it a little bit more now because we convinced someone to sing All Coons Look Alike to me. 
Talk about a coon having trouble. I think I have enough of my own. It's all about my Lucy Janey stubble, and she has caused my heart to mourn. There's another coon barber from Virginia. In society, he's the leader of the day. And now my honey gal is going to quit me. Yes, she's gone and drove this coon away. She's no excuse to turn me loose. I've been abused, and now I'm all confused. Cause these words she then did say Well, all coons look alike to me I've got another bow, you see And he's just as good to me As you nigga ever tried to be He spends his money free I know we can't agree So I don't like you know how All coons look alike to me The person you just heard singing that song was Coley Gilchrist. And I couldn't let her leave without talking to her about her experience of singing All Coons Look Alike to me. What kind of emotions come up in you when you think about Ernest Hogan being a Black man writing this for white audiences? It was off-putting and it kind of felt a bit like, you know, I was almost judging him and thinking he was a bit of a traitor for just saying those things about the Black community and, and painting us in this picture. And although it was kind of used at Black people's expense, he was trying to create a name and probably sustain himself back in those times. So how did you feel singing it just now? It was a bit hard to to, to just get, get over myself in a sense and to get those words out in the atmosphere and kind of shake off, you know, any feelings I had towards it. But I think the biggest thing that helped me is just putting on that actress kind of facade. Do you have anything else to add in terms of your feelings about this? I would just say I would love to continue. This has opened my eyes to... Um, a person and and other people, other writers like him that I knew nothing about. But I think it's important to continue to be a student as an artist and to learn about um, basically your ancestors and music. I think it's really good to continue to do your research and learn, learn as much as you can. Thank you to Coley Gilchrist for singing All Coons Look Alike to Me. Oh, and stick around through the credits to hear Coley sing the rest of the song. All right, time for my favorite and only segment of this podcast. (laughs) Roll credits. Um, Who, what, when, where, how would you like to give credit to? I like to give credit to braids. Okay. I have been wearing my hair in small braids that I've had in for like a month now, Mm. I think. And I just love how I don't have to do anything to it. I'm not really thinking about how it looks. I have to put so little energy or thought into it. Braids are so versatile. They're so useful. Um, They come in so many different shapes and forms. And I'm thankful for the braids that I have in my head right now. Shout out to braids. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I'd like to give credit to old friends. I've had an old friend reach out. So shout out to you, old friend. I love it. (laughs) That's it for today. See y'all next week with another episode. On Theme is a production of iHeartRadio and Fairweather Friends Media. This episode was written by Eves Jeffco and Katie Mitchell. It was edited and produced by Tari Harrison. Follow us on Instagram at OnThemeShow. You can also send us an email at hello at onTheme.show. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
Never said a word to hurt her feelings. I always bought her presents by the score. And now my brain with sorrow am reeling. Cause she won't accept them anymore. If I treated her wrong, she may have left me. Like all the rest, she's gone and let me down. If I'm lucky, I'm going to catch my policy. And win my sweet thing away from town. For I'm worried. Yes, I'm desperate. And I've been joned and I'll get Get dangerous. Oh my. If these words she says to me, well, all coons look alike to me. I've got another bow, you see, and he's just as good to me as you nigga ever tried to be. He spends his money free, and I know we can agree, so I don't like you know how all coons look alike to me. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Kerry Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-course, and then mm-hmm. a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.